folks, and welcome to the Sioux Nation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jake Geis. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Grant Crawford, who is the Associate Director of the Cattle Technical Services for Merck Animal Health. He's here today to talk about deworming and cows and calves, and thanks a lot for coming on the show, Grant. Thank you, Dr. Geis. I'm glad to be here. When we delve into this topic of deworming, we've got a lot of different products out there, right? They, they have a cost to them, but they're relatively affordable. And because of that, what's our, our newest deworming technology? Yeah, the newest molecule, uh, it's been oh, a good 10, 15 years. So there, there has not been a whole lot new in terms of, of dewormers for quite some time as far as the active ingredients are concerned. And of course, that is where we start to see a little rise in resistance. And that's kind of what I'd like to delve into a bit today. That's a big issue across uh, really all livestock species, but we certainly see it popping up more and more in, in ruminants and in cattle. So maybe before we really jump into this, could you explain to the listeners how deworming products were first created to work? You know, these products, if you think back to when Ivamec was introduced and, and products like, like Safeguard, I mean, they've been around a long time, 40 years give or take, and some even longer than that. Basically, there's multiple modes of action for dewormers, but some of them will basically paralyze the parasite and, and cause them to, to die that way. Some of them call, uh, inhibit reproduction of the parasite. So there's a number of different ways that they work and a number of different modes of action. But the real key is we need to remember that these parasites, by and large, live in the gut of cattle. So that's where we, we want to catch them. And uh, if we can catch them in the gut or kill them in the gut, then we can reduce the impact that they're going to have on nutrition and health and different things like that. So that that's really what the aim is of these products, regardless of what the mode of action is. It's really a matter of trying to kill them before they can reproduce and shed more eggs out into the pasture. We have all these different modes of action, but we've had the same modes of action for so long. We've seen a genetic shift in the worms themselves. And could you speak a little bit about the genetic changes we've seen in these worms that allow them to survive these different treatments we have? Absolutely. Whenever we have a product that we use repeatedly, we are selecting for resistance. And whether or not that resistance selection happens quickly or very slowly depends on how we use the product, how often we use the product, if we're using it at the correct dose, and so on and so forth. But basically, when we use a product and a parasite survives treatment with that product, and then that parasite reproduces, it's possible that that genetically, the offspring of those parasites can be resistant. So it really comes from the reproduction of parasites that have survived treatment. And as that goes on over time, if we have a group of parasites that have reproduced and produced offspring that are resistant to whatever dewormer we use, then that can just propagate from that point forward. Every successive generation can have resistance. And this can happen a, a lot of different ways. You know, it can happen from underdosing of products. The weaker worms or parasites are killed, but the stronger worms survive and then they have less competition so they can grow faster and, and reproduce. It can happen from uh, repeated use or misuse. Uh, it can happen from using the correct dose but misapplying it. You know, we think of porons. A lot of times we're trying to pour a cow from across the pen, and whether or not we're getting the correct dose is questionable. So there's a number of different ways that resistance can really start, but it really has to do with one generation surviving treatment and then reproducing and producing offspring that are resistant to uh, whatever the, the product is. There are so many different parasites that actually infect ruminants, and not all of them have the same resistant profiles as other ones. So if you have an idea of what bugs you've got 
to work against. Are there different strategies that work better for certain parasites over other parasites? There certainly can be. And the resistance that we see, you know, the, the ones that we hear a lot about as being resistant are uh, homunculus, which if you're a small ruminant producer, sheep and goats, you're probably very familiar with barber pole worm, homunculus contortus. And in cattle, we don't see very much homunculus contortus. It's homunculus placei. That is the specific parasite that we see in cattle. But even though it's not homunculus contortus, but homunculus placei, there is resistance to that as well. And then one that's more recent that uh, we're starting to see more and more resistance is cuperia. Uh, cuperia used to be handled pretty well by all dewormers, but now we're starting to see a lot of cuperia resistance pop up as well. So back to your original question, Dr. Geis, is there different strategies we can employ? Now, most of the dewormers are pretty broad spectrum. And when they were approved, they weren't, by and large, they weren't approved for just one specific parasite or just a handful of specific parasites. They were approved for a pretty wide range of parasites. Now, as time has gone on, some of the dewormers remain effective against a wide range of parasites and, and some do not. And then there's different stages of parasites too, uh, from immature to mature parasites. And so it's really a matter of looking at where the resistance patterns are with different anthelmintics or dewormers and then determining which products work best for a specific group of parasites and uh, should we use them in combination to, for one another and if that will increase the efficacy. So does it really behoove a producer to take fecal samples, try to find out what parasites that he or she is facing before we look at what treatments we want to use or maybe to amend the treatment protocol that we are using? Yeah, absolutely. The fecal testing is a very simple, underutilized resource that gives producers really two things. For one, it, it gives you a an estimate of worm load in those cattle. Now, it, it's not exact because remember, we're measuring eggs in a fecal sample rather than worms, and it's only mature worms that are producing eggs. So it doesn't give it an estimate of immature worms, but at least it gives us an idea of are these heavily parasitized cattle? Are they lightly parasitized cattle? And so it gives us that baseline of what's inside of these cattle. But then secondly, and probably the real value is to determine if your dewormer was working. If these cattle were dewormed, and especially if you have a fecal sample from before they're dewormed to determine what the baseline egg count is, and then you come back two weeks later and take fecal samples again, then you get a good idea of the efficacy of that dewormer. And if that dewormer worked, or if you need to come back and deworm those cattle again with, with something different. Well, that's a good tip, I think, that really is underutilized in our industry. Now, in general, though, aside from the testing, are there any other strategies that producer could utilize that would help abate the possibility of resistance occurring in their herd? If, you know, if I do X, I'm less likely to have resistance just in general because of this management technique. It's important to remember where worms live. They even though we talk about worms being in the gut, in the digestive tract, in some cases in some other tissues and animals, it's important to remember that that's a very small proportion of the worms. Uh, we, we often say that 5% of the worms live in the gut or in the animal, and 95% of them live out on grass. So they live on grass. And so the first thing to remember is when cattle are on grass, they're picking up worms. And it doesn't matter if we're in a really dry climate or a, a drought situation like we have going on. Uh, the last couple of years, or if a very lush climate, like if we get to the southern and southeastern U.S. where they get 60 inches of rain, there's going to be worms, uh, different populations of worms. There might be different seasonality, but I mean, we face worm problems in the upper Midwest and northern climates as well. So the first thing I tell people is let's make sure that cattle are 
worm-free before they go out to pasture. And uh, whether that means deworming them at turnout in you know, May or early June, whenever they're going out to pasture, or deworming them when they come off of grass in the fall to make sure they're worm-free in the winter, either way helps us ensure that they're going out to grass worm-free because they're not going to pick up worms on corn stalks. They're not going to pick up worms on dry lot. They're not going to pick up worms on a dormant pasture in the winter. It's, it's green grass where the worms live. So that's really number one. Proper dosing is important and we can eyeball cattle. A lot of people still think they have 1,200 pound cows. I don't know what you see, Dr. Geis, but I don't see many 1,200 pound cows around anymore. No, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's not just cows either. You know, if, if it's a 1,400 or 1,500 pound cow, we, we need to be deworming for the size of that animal, but also calves. We may be deworming a group of, let's say, wean calves that are averaging 500, 550 pounds. But remember, that's an average. Several of those, half of those cattle, in theory, are heavier than that. So we need to make sure we're dosing to the heavy end of the cattle or in a perfect world, if we can dose them on individual weight, which I know is probably not going to happen, but if at least we can dose to the heavy end of the cattle to ensure we're getting the proper amount of product into those cattle to keep them clean. And then a lot of it just comes down to nutrition as well. Cattle that have a better nutritional program, adequate protein, adequate energy, adequate vitamins and minerals, are they're going to be healthier, have a healthier immune system. And they're going to be able to fight off worm infections better than cattle that are not in good shape. So if you have a body condition score three or four cow, they're going to be affected a lot more by internal parasites than a cow that's in a body condition score five or six, for instance. So that portion of it not only comes down to nutrition, but just management of the the cow herd or the, the stalker herd or the replacement heifers, whatever they may be. Yeah, that's really interesting as you go into that, just with all the different things a person can do, all the different things you can think about doing. And and maybe one thing to comment on, you touched a little bit on the difference between cows and calves, but are there any specific deworming practices that you might want to think when treating cows versus treating calves? And not just calves on the side of the cow, but maybe if you're going to graze stalker calves. The life cycle of worms is different depending on the, the size of animals. And what I've in my life cycle is the time between when worms are consumed off of grass, so off of pasture, and when that animal, whether it's a cow or calf or, or stalker or replacement heifer, when that animal is shedding eggs back on the grass. So that's what I mean by life cycle. So when you look at a cow, a mature cow, that life cycle is about six to eight weeks. So if we turn cows out on grass today, uh, mid-May, six weeks from now, maybe eight weeks from now, they're going to be shedding eggs back on the grass from the worms that they're picking up today. So you think of that, that's getting us to the 1st of July, middle of July, somewhere in there. Now, if it's a stalker or a replacement heifer, let's say we have yearling heifers that we're just putting out on grass, maybe uh, getting them uh, ready to be bred here in, in a month or so, that life cycle is more like four to six weeks. So whatever they're picking up in mid-May, they're going to be shedding eggs back mid-June to the 1st of July. So a shorter life cycle. And then we go to the little calves. So, you know, the the 100-pound calves, 150-pound calves that are going out to pasture with their mothers after, you know, a month of age or so. It's more like two to four weeks for them. So it's a really quick life cycle for these little calves. So they're picking up worms today. If they're grazing, they're picking up worms today. They might be shedding eggs right away, 1st of June, somewhere there. So it's important to remember those life cycles so we can try to stay somewhat ahead of worms out on pasture. For instance, if we ensure the cows are dewormed prior to turning them out in mid-May, 
we really don't need to worry about deworming them again until probably 4th of July, somewhere in there. 1st of July, mid-July, a lot of people turn out bulls around that time. So if we can just target a, a summertime deworming around that bull turnout time or 4th of July, we're doing a pretty good job there of, of keeping up with the cows and staying ahead of that worm cycle. Now for heifers or stockers, we probably need to do that after four to six weeks. So instead of the 4th of July, it should maybe be the middle of June. And calves, once they start grazing, you know, after they're out on pasture for a little while, they're going to start grazing as well. For them, if we can deworm them about a month after they start grazing, we'll help stay somewhat ahead of that, that worm life cycle. So we decrease the impact of worms on those calves, cows, or stockers, or heifers. And then we also help to reduce the worm load on pasture. We'll, we'll never completely get worms off of pastures unless we just leave them fallow for a while. But if we can use a strategic deworming program with that life cycle, we can at least reduce the pressure on those pastures. Dr. Crawford, thank you very much. You've helped illuminate all the different little nuances that occur with worms and deworming and the worm life cycle. And I think it's really appreciated to help highlight these so we understand why we deworm at time X and why we deworm animal one animal in a different way than another animal. So this was a really great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to stop by the podcast and share it with our listeners. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Guys. I really appreciate it. And thank you very much to our listening audience. Y'all take care, folks. Mm-hmm.